Just as the main characters in City on a Hill fight against the status quo of corruption, Fontana as a writer and producer has fought just as diligently against the bland status quo of television. That's from David David Bianculli of NPR. It's a good blur, but I don't think the show is nearly as good. City on a Hill is what we're going to be reviewing this time here on Cinephile. In addition to that, how about this smorgasbord of stuff that I've been catching up on? Okja, which is Bong Joon-ho's film he made before he won the Academy Award for Parasite. Bruce Almighty, that's right, Jim Carrey, classic from 03. I'd never seen it before, so I caught up on that. Reversal of Fortune, I wanted to watch again. 30th anniversary of the film, which won an Academy Award for Jeremy Irons. And Copland, an awesome cop movie from years ago. Those are the movies we're reviewing this time. Some entertainment news, of course, about coronavirus. And also a Mount Rushmore of Jim Carrey movies in honor of Bruce Almighty. How tough is that going to be? A, a Mount Rushmore of the Jim Carrey best movies. We'll also do Total Recall from 1990. That's the films of 1989 when Driving Miss Daisy won Best Picture, if you can believe it or not. First and foremost, though, thank you so much for listening. Really appreciate all of you. Hope you're all staying safe and at home. This is obviously going to be another month at least of this, so uh, let's keep the self-distancing going. And hopefully you're reading a lot of good books and reading a lot of, uh, you know, Good stuff out there on your hands and, of course, watching a lot of movies and TV, and that's where I attempt to help. I want to start with what everybody is talking about, which is Tiger King on Netflix. I believe it's the number one trending thing in Netflix right now. Everyone's watching it, tweeting about it, commenting about it. So I watched an episode and a half, just too weird for me. And to be honest with you, it reminded me of a great documentary, a much better documentary, in my opinion, called Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. That's from Errol Morris. And that's actually what I'd rather see when it comes to line kings and line tamers. But I recognize the social currency, which is why I wanted to open with that. Like I said, I think everyone who's watching it or talking about it wasn't for me. Too outlandish, too weird, too screwed up. And it's seven episodes of 45 minutes apiece. So to me, you know, I gave it over an hour and I don't want to give it five hours of my life. That was my thought process on it. Joe, have you watched Tiger King? Are you aware of the buzz around this on Netflix? And I think we're in the exact same place as far as the the, the show. I, I, I'm an episode and a half in. Um, so far, I don't really know what to make of it, but I have been told that around episode three, the plot just takes a really, really weird turn. Yeah, I'm at the point now where he's married to two different guys, and, you know, listen, do what you want. I'm just like, this is getting a little too weird for me. I don't, I don't know where this is going. And, and, I, and I wonder, too, and I'm curious, because now I'm glad you're going to keep watching, because then you can give your review I'm never a fan of shows where you're laughing at the characters. I don't know if the filmmaker is trying to illuminate these characters or he's laughing at the characters. And I think once you figure out what it is, uh, that will often depend upon whether or not you think it's good or not. But we'll see what happens. I'm sure a lot of people want to talk about that at another time. Let's start with City on a Hill. It's on Showtime. Here's a synopsis. Early 1990s Boston. Violent criminals, corruption, racism, part of the norm. Hailing from Brooklyn, District Attorney DeCourcy Ward seeks change and forms a surprising alliance with a hardened FBI veteran. This unlikely duo takes on a family of armored car robbers from Charlestown. The case evolves into the change that Boston needs by altering the city's criminal justice system. And they pulled a hell of a bait and switch on me, did they not? This is what they love to do. You throw out the splashy name and the nerds like me get involved. I'm not talking about Kevin Bacon, who is terrific playing Jackie Rohr. Of course, he is the big name. But Tom Fontana. Tom Fontana is an absolute legend when it comes to television. Homicide, Life on the Street, which is one of my favorite five dramas of all time, one of my favorite shows Ever as a kid, it's a great cop drama from the 90s. I always piss off people who love The Wire. 
Because I say, yeah, it's good. But David Simon, the creator of The Wire, also wrote Homicide, Life on the Street, the book, which was then adapted into the show by Tom Fontana and also Barry Levinson, the acclaimed filmmaker. So I always tell people, hey, listen, The Wire is good, but Homicide's better. Fontana also did Oz, which is one of my top five favorite uh, shows of all time. That's a prison drama, which again featured an outstanding cast. So in the case of City on a Hail, this isn't something that would be in my purview, but that I was reading Entertainment Weekly and I saw Tom Fontana. I'm like, what? And even in the blurb, it said legendary showrunner Tom Fontana. I'm like, hey, I know Tom Fontana. Also did St. Elsewhere. If you're a fan of 80s dramas, again, another very popular, critically acclaimed show. But then I start watching City on a Hail and I'm, ah, they got me. Because I checked the credits. He didn't write any of the episodes. He did not create this show. It's from Chuck McClain. Instead, you just get an executive producer credit from Tom Fontana and Barry Levinson. I said, come on. That's like when Scorsese gave Uncut Gems an executive producer credit. And we asked the Safdie brothers, me and Ben Lines, hey, what was Marty's involvement? He's like, nothing. He just watched the movie. He said, yeah, it's great. You found out my name on it. Go for it. Executive producer, Martin Scorsese. So I don't know how involved Tom Fontana was in this show, but my suspicion after watching three episodes is not nearly enough. Here's the problem with it. And Joe and I have talked about this before. It's just too much Boston. Like at this point, it's so derivative to do a copy show about Boston. Like, haven't we done this enough? We cannot overcome the greatness of The Departed or Ben Affleck's movie, The Town. I mean, no more on the Boston. Like, I got it. Literally, the movie starts out. They're in the snow. They're talking about the Bruins game. They're dropping their R's. Later on, they're talking about the Sox. And everyone's a drunk, and they're all Irish Italians. I'm like, enough. Like, I got it. And there's a joke with the Catholic priest. I mean, they're, they're dealing with all these same stereotypes. Plus, it's even made worse by the fact it's 1990s Boston. So you got to deal with the bad fashion of that era, the haircuts, etc. The only reason to watch this show, really, is Kevin Bacon, who is nothing short of highly entertaining, playing what else? A crooked, dirty cop. He's got the pencil-thin mustache. He's snorting blow. He's banging, banging some Asian chick in a rub and tug. He may potentially have an STD, which is the funniest part of the first three episodes I saw is he goes to a doctor to find out whether or not he's an STD. The doctor then calls and his mother-in-law answers the phone and takes the answer. What kind of a doctor would just tell the mother-in-law, oh yeah, by the way, your son-in-law does have uh, an STD or not. Later on, she confronts Kevin Bacon and says, oh, you're disgusting. Stay away from me. You've got cooties. You know, I spoke to the doctor. So she misleads him into thinking he does have something. He doesn't have something. Later on, his wife challenges him to sleep with her because he, she says, oh, you haven't slept with me in two months. And he's like, ah, I'm just out of the mood, you know. Meantime, he's harboring the fact he thinks he has this ailment, which he ends up not having. But let's put it this way. After three episodes, and I was sent, by the way, the entire first season, it is 10 episodes. I have no reason to continue because to me, it's all same old, same old. I've seen it before, whether it's cop shows, whether it's Boston shows. Apologies to Kevin Bacon, who is very entertaining. I'm giving City on a Hill two Maple Leafs. As you said before, Joe, enough of the Boston. That That's why I was staying away from it, too. Just You're right. It's just so much Boston. I want a different market for a change. You know what I mean? Not only do they win in sports, but it just seems like there's so many stories based out of there. And to, like what you said, love Kevin Bacon, but he's not going to keep me or bring me into the show. Yeah, I was about to say, if it was literally him on screen for all 60 minutes, I might do it. But he's a co-star in the show. And uh, the other lead actor, Aldous Hodge, I think is very wooden, just playing one of these straight arrow uh, DAs, uh, DeCourcy Ward's his character's name. So Bacon's in about half the episode. So you know what? I may at some point just start scrolling through and just watch Bacon scenes because he's clearly chewing the scenery and having a very good time doing it. Brian Tallarico, RogerEbert.com, a show that has just enough crackling dialogue and fascinating characters to keep its sometimes clunky plot moving. I would focus on the clunky and not the rest of it. 
Next up here in our reviews is Okja. That's right. If you're a fan of Bong Joon-ho's Parasite and you said, hey, what else has this guy done? Maybe you've seen Snowpiercer with Chris Evans, but now you should watch Okja. Readily available. It's on Netflix right now. To the surprise of no one, when I go to Netflix, I click on critically acclaimed films, and that's where I found Okja. What's it about? Well, it's Bong Joon-ho, which means it's weird. For 10 idyllic years, young Milia has been caretaker and constant companion to Okja, a massive animal and an even bigger friend. And first and foremost, I thought, and when my kids were watching it with me, they thought he was a rhino. Apparently, he's a pig. Uh, at home in the mountains of South Korea. That changes when family-owned multinational conglomerate Mirando Corporation takes Okja for themselves and transports her to New York. This is a giant pig where an image-obsessed and self-promoting CEO has big plans for Mija's dearest friend. With no particular plan but single-minded and intent, Mija sets out on a rescue mission. So in many ways, it reminded me, you know what it reminded me of, is The Shape of Water. You know, Guillermo del Toro is paying homage to the creature from the Black Lagoon, or Splash, and it's a love story about the love between a creature and a woman. In Okja, it's about the love between a young girl and an animal. Well, again, I think it looks like a rhino slash elephant, but apparently it's a giant pig. And so you've got a bunch of scenery chewing. In this case, you get the scenery chewing from Tilda Swinton, who I think is very funny, playing two roles, Lucy Miranda and Nancy Miranda. And I think way, way, way over the top, Jake Gyllenhaal is Johnny Wilcox, who I think is a good actor giving a bad performance. I think it's just so ridiculous what he's doing. It's impossible to take him seriously. Having said that, because it's Bong Joon-ho, it's different and it's eccentric. And I think it makes really strong points about animal cruelty and that uh, what we're doing in terms of our eating, one might argue it kind of hits you over the head with it a little bit too much. But I'm going to give it three maple leaves because it's got a distinct visual style. You can clearly tell it's in the hands of an auteur in Bong Joon-ho. And the first hour in particular has a couple of thrilling chase sequences. I mean, you think of Parasite, you don't necessarily think of action. You think of drama and suspense. But the action that he puts off here in Okja is really impressive. And I think for that reason alone, I would recommend it. Paul Dano is good in a small role playing Jay. He's one of the animal rights activists. You got Stephen Yoon, if you're a fan of uh, The Walking Dead or the uh, foreign film Burning, he was really good in as well. So if you're a fan of Parasite, as I am, want to see more of him, I went back and watched Okja from a couple years ago. It's available on Netflix. I'm going to give it three Maple Leafs because of the style and the distinct nature of it. But unlike Parasite, I'd have no reason to watch this again. And unlike Parasite, I don't know how many people I'd recommend this to. Joe, you also saw it. What'd you think? I agree with you. I would also give it three Maple Leafs. Um, and overall, really enjoyed it, enjoyed the story, the CGI and the action incorporated with the CGI, even, you know, when Okja is walking through a pond and the water's rippling, I thought that was really impressive, but there was one thing, and the spoiler is coming up, that really took me out of the movie, and you can tell me if I'm nitpicking, but they would be talking to Mija, the characters, in English, and she would understand every single word. But some scenes she would need a translator. And then they would reference, hey, Mija, you should learn English. So that kind of took me out of the movie. Because I'm like, wait, does she know English? They, this, they just explained their whole plan to her in English. Like, I, I, you know what I mean? That's a great point. And you're absolutely right. Especially later on when she actually does end up speaking English in a critical scene. I go, hang on a second. Does she know it or not know it? I think it's a quibble, but it's an understandable quibble. And you're right about as far as taking it out of the movie, because you go, wait, am I reading the subtitles? Am I not reading the subtitles? And what's going on here? I think that's a fair point, Joe. That, that was really the only thing. If, if anything, just don't reference that she needs to learn English as well. You know what I mean? Just just let it kind of breathe, I think. But 
overall, I did like the movie. Yeah, that's a good, could just be that she knows or knows some bits of English that some people do. You're right. Don't make it explicit. Right, exactly. All right, well done. So that's Okja available on Netflix. Here's a couple of reviews for people as well. Um, what makes the jumble cohere, as usual with Bong, is his extraordinary grasp of space and speed, especially in the Korean half of the film. I agree, Anthony Lander, The New Yorker. Uh, a strange, well-intentioned, but heavy-handed girl in her animal story that merely demonstrates Netflix still has a lot to learn about the movie business. Ouch, that's from Brian Lowry of CNN.com. Not only criticizing the movie, but also Netflix. Heavy-handed. I mean, I, I could see that. It is beating over the head. And also from Zach Sconfeld. Um, uh, it's a testament to Bong's sprawling ambition that Okja manages to be so many things at once, a caustic satire of corporate evil, an intercontinental action-slash-adventure epic, and a coming-of-age narrative for the girl. All right, let's light things up with a little bit of Jim Carrey, shall we? Bruce Almighty. Hadn't seen it. Came out 17 years ago. Finally got around to seeing it. If you haven't seen it, you probably have seen it, but here's what it's about. Bruce Nolan's career in television has been stalled for a while. When he's passed over for a coveted anchorman position, he loses it complaining that God is treating him poorly. Soon after God, Morgan Freeman actually contacts Bruce and offers him all of his powers if he thinks he can do a better job. Bruce accepts and goes on a spree using his newfound abilities for selfish personal use until he realizes that the prayers of the world are going unanswered. Director Tom Shadiak carries old buddy reuniting with him here. Morgan Freeman playing God. Had no idea Jennifer Aniston was a love interest. She's Grace Connolly at her most fetching peak Aniston. And of course, a character actor I always have time for, Philip Baker Hall. You know him from Hard Eight, other uh, P.T. Anderson movies. He plays the boss. I'm going to give it two Maple Leafs. I don't think I was missing much in not watching it for 17 years. I think Jim Carrey's made many better movies, which is why we're going to do the Mount Rushmore of his best films later on. But one scene in particular, Joe, is worth the price of admission, and it's why I watched it several times on the DVR, and that is Steve Carell as Evan Baxter. And by the way, listed as Stephen Carell, so that's interesting, did lose the N at some point in his career, but the scene where Carey, using his godlike powers, ends up mimicking what Carell's trying to say, and you know he's uttering gibberish, then starts doing stupid commentary from the prompter. That scene alone is tremendous physical comedy by Steve Carell, and I highly recommend it. Other than that, it was you know fairly predictable comedy. I had some moments, especially when he first rediscovers, or excuse me, once he discovers the powers, it's good. But to me, it wasn't as zany or as madcap as some of those other movies. As you know, I've been you know revisiting some of these movies, the ones that I had not seen over the years. Me, myself, and Irene, I think better than I thought it would be. Pretty funny. Uh, yes, man was deplorable as expected, and I'm going to say Bruce Almighty was simply it. How about you? Oh, Adnan, I cannot have a fair opinion of this. I used to have this on DVD, so I've seen the movie a thousand times at this point. Um, <laughs> I hold it near and dear to my heart. I like how you know we were talking about Boston earlier, but I like how Buffalo gets some love. Yes, um, I thought it was funny. Jim Carrey's always great. I watched. Yes, man, that you're referencing the uh, other month, and I didn't really like it, but Jim Carrey brings it with every single role. I definitely would recommend the movie to most people, but then again, don't hold me accountable because I have seen it too, too many times. Well, that's fair enough. My brother loves it. He told me he thinks it's one of his best, which is why that inspired uh, our Mount Rushmore. Peter Bradshaw, Guardian. This has some very funny moments and lines in its first act, and then jettisons the comedy in favor of a self-important, deadly serious feel-good ending. I completely agree. The last 30 minutes, talk about heavy-handed. I'm like, okay, I got it, fine. Be nicer to Jennifer Aniston. We all should be. Uh, Robert Kohler of Variety. There's remarkably little done with a premise snatch from high-concept heaven, adding yet another file to the growing cabinet of under-realized comedies. I would agree with that. Next up, 30th anniversary, Reversal of Fortune. 
Klaus Bulow, can you hear me? I'd never known Jeremy Irons' work till I saw this movie. I was 12 years old, and he's simply smashing, playing a guy who's accused of murdering his wife. And in the movie, directed by Barbette Schroeder, in a real homage to one of my favorite movies of all time, Sunset Boulevard, you have a dead guy narrating the movie, and then you see Joseph Cotton floating in the pool, one of the best openings ever. Well, here you got Glenn Close, who is the murdered wife, narrating the movie to open it and talking about how she died and what happened. That brings you into the story. Irons is nothing short of phenomenal winning best actor because his character is so enigmatic. The whole thought is, did he or didn't he murder his wife? And he's a very aloof, unlikable character who married this woman who has a lot of money, who openly cheats on her, previously paying for it with other women, and now has a girlfriend on the side. The more you learn about this guy, the more creepy you think he is. But Irons plays him so well, and it's a really magnetic performance. In particular, there's one scene where Ron Silver's Alan Dershowitz is confronting him. I believe this was the scene they showed at the Oscars 30 years ago. But he's confronting him and says, you know, what's the truth? Because I don't even know what the truth is anymore. And he goes, you know, you're a very strange man. And Irons repeats with delicious, delicious line reading, you have no idea. Which my wife was watching with me, had never seen Reversal of Fortune. He goes, oh, that's from Lion King. I'm like, no, no, it's from Reversal of Fortune, of course. Lion King paid homage to it because that movie came out in 1994, Reversal of Fortune 1990. But for the simple fact that I was happy to relive that moment, you have no idea. I'm going to give Reversal of Fortune 3 Maple Leafs. If you like a good murder mystery and a drama in terms of did he or didn't he, the reason that I'm not as high on the movie as I once was was Ron Silver's Alan Dershowitz. He's a good actor doing a good job. But Dershowitz is one of these guys who at the time, you know, I was 12 years old, Joe. I thought he was this idealistic lawyer and he was helping the impoverished and then took on this Klaus von Bülow case because he felt it was unwinnable, but everybody deserves a fair trial. But now if you Google Alan Dershowitz, I mean, the guy's an idiot. He's like a huge Trump supporter. He's sold out. He's a scumbag. And so when I'm watching the movie, I'm very acutely aware of the fact the movie's based on Alan Dershowitz's book. And the movie, I felt, tries to make him way too much into this hero. And I'm like, hang on a second. The movie's best when it's examining Klaus von Bülow, Jeremy Irons, and Glenn Close, who's very good, as you see here in flashback. But the other scenes are just about, you know, the legal process and law students, and they feel just a little bit cliched. And Dershowitz in particular, it's as if he agreed to let the film be adapted as long as it makes him into this savior and this, you know, Christ-like figure who's saving the world. So I found that a little bit tough to stomach on the rewatch, but I still recommend it. If you've never seen Reversal of Fortune, I think people will enjoy it. Joe, I know you've never seen it, but are you at least aware of Klaus von Bülow or Jeremy Irons' work in the movie? Yeah, I, I'm aware of the story and the movie itself. I definitely will check this out. But you're right. It seems like at this point, as it's aged, revisionist history has occurred in the meantime with Alan Dershowitz. So I will be very mindful of that when I watch it. Yeah, exactly. Like you, you and I both know you like nothing more when a guy's trying to make himself the hero. And as soon as I saw, oh, based on the book by Alan Dershowitz, I'm sure he had a lot of involvement in the movie. And at times, it's just a little much to take. Uh, here's some reviews for you. Vincent Camby of the New York Times. There's a high degree of sometimes shocking intelligence running through Reversal of Fortune. It is a really well-crafted movie. That's a good word for it by Camby. Intelligent. Intelligent filmmaking. Like, you'll have Klaus von Bülow talking about something that his wife used to do, and then they'll cut immediately to Glenn Close in bed, you know, dealing with whatever ailment she had at the time. So it's really smartly constructed. Robin Carney of Empire. This is a movie rich in moral ambiguities and one which thoroughly plays voyeurs and detective story enthusiasts alike. And Peter Travers of Rolling Stone, Reversal of Fortune is an often chilly movie, but the chill cuts to the bone. Yes, it is not a warm, syrupy movie, but a guy potentially killing his wife. 
Last movie before we get to the Mount Rushmore of Jim Carrey, and that is Copland, one of my favorite cop movies. I decide to revisit this one. When hot-headed Superboy, played by Michael Rappaport, accidentally gets involved in an ugly, racially motivated incident, his uncle, Ray Donlin, Harvey Keitel, a corrupt New York City cop, attempts to sweep it under the rug by helping fake his nephew's death. The bungled cover-up leads to investigations by idealistic internal affairs officer Mo Tilden, played by Robert De Niro and Freddie Heflin, Sylvester Stallone, a sheriff of the suburban New Jersey town where Donlin and his fellow crooked policemen live. Honestly, it's a great cop movie. If you've never seen it, you should. Stallone packed on 35 to 40 pounds to play the lumbering cop. It's got an incredible cast. I mean, Harvey Keitel playing Ray Donlin, who is up to no good as one of the police figures. Ray Liotta is Gary Figgis who also is a conflicted cop, but is more on the side of Stallone and doing something good. Robert De Niro playing Mo Tilden. I gave you a chance, and you blew it! You blew it! Eating the sandwich. My man Cabby loves it. He's playing the IA guy. Peter Berg, who we tried to get on the podcast, playing Joey Rendon, one of these, you know, bulked-up, aggressive cops. He's got a scene of domestic abuse with Annabelle Sciorra, who's wonderful as always, playing Liz Randone. You got Robert Patrick with a mustache. He's playing another dirty cop. Janine Garofalo, so funny on the Larry Sanders show. She plays Sylvester Stallone's uh, partner. Kathy Moriarty from Raging Bull. I mean, ridiculous cast and a really strong statement from James Mangold before he made Walk the Line and Wolverine and all those other movies like Logan. This really kind of announced his arrival as a director and a force to be reckoned with after he had made Heavy with Pruitt Taylor Vince. He's the writer and director of Copland. It was meant as an homage to 70s movies of the past. You know, he loves Serpico and French Connection. Who doesn't? And uh, as Owen Gladwell of Entertainment Weekly wrote, Mangold certainly knew what he was doing when he cast Keitel and De Niro. This was their first movie together, 1997, since I believe they'd done Mean Streets back in 1973, so almost 24 years ago. The ending in particular where Freddie, who battles... Uh, He's got bad hearing in one ear, and then Robert Patrick makes sure he can't hear in another ear. The climax alone is spectacular filmmaking in terms of the use of the sound and the cinematography. We talked about Making Waves, that documentary, recently on Cinephile. This is another example of using sound really smartly by Mangold. Todd McCarthy of Variety. Although too simplistic in its good guys, bad guys approach to morally and emotionally ambiguous material, Copland emerges as an absorbing and dramatic yarn about exposing the evil doings of some of New York's finest. And Ian Freer of Empire Magazine, a good effort, but the star power on show throws the proceedings off kilter somewhat, hiking up an expectation the film ultimately cannot live up to. I'm going to give a four-inch beliefs. I think Copland's a great movie and a great cop movie. Joe, not sure if you've seen it. I don't believe you have, but Copland, definitely worthy of watching. It's available right now on Stars during a free preview. I haven't seen it, but it sounds like it's a movie that um, you just kind of enjoy when you watch it. You know, it, you, you have two hours to kill. You want to watch something that you're really going to like with a lot of action and a great cast. Copland's the perfect movie for that. Yeah, absolutely. And just quickly, I also want to mention a movie I watched called The Stranger. I know people aren't crazy into black and white movies maybe these days, but again, it's on Netflix, critically acclaimed movie section. Orson Welles co-stars and directs Edward G. Robinson, plays a private eye investigating a former Nazi who's now trying to disguise himself as an American. That Nazi-turned-American nice guy is Orson Welles. It's a terrific movie. If you like black and white, if you like noir, suspense, and Wells was a tremendous director, obviously a giant of cinema. The Stranger is very readily available. Just go to Netflix quickly and claim films. I always love Edward G. Robinson playing gangsters, but this time he's playing uh, the hero of the story. It's short, hour 32 minutes. If you're in the vibe for a little black and white goodness, good suspense movie, check out The Stranger on Netflix. The Mount Rushmore, Jim Carrey's coming up. Entertainment news is on the way coming up right after this. 
on June 14th. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello. I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. All right, some entertainment news to pass along here. Of course, the world is talking about COVID-19, and of course, it's affecting the world of Hollywood. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association suspended two of the eligibility rules for the Golden Globe Awards in light of movie theater closures necessitated by the spread of the coronavirus. The suspensions, which are temporary but could be extended, mean that films that lost their Los Angeles theatrical runs can still qualify for the Golden Globes, and exhibitors will no longer be required to invite HFPA members to official screenings. The HFPA announced in a statement the measures were taken to adjust the requirements for Golden Globes awards eligibility. The rule has been temporarily suspended to cover the period from March 15th to April 30th. 78th Golden Globe Awards scheduled to take place in January of 2021. But that's good to see here, Joel. At least they understand people can't get to the movies and therefore you get to loosen things up in terms of qualification. Yeah, and I think it's the right move too by the Hollywood Foreign Press. I'm, I'm sure the Academy Awards uh, are also taking a close look at what the Hollywood Foreign Press is doing right now before they make a decision on how they'll on how this might affect the Oscars next year. Absolutely, and let's hope uh, by that point we've got some better news here. There isn't a second wave of this pandemic. Some other news I found this fascinating. Spike Lee taken to Instagram, one of my favorite directors. He shared a script he wrote for an unproduced Jackie Robinson biopic based on the iconic ballplayer's 1972 autobiography, which is appropriately titled, I Never Had It Made. According to Spike, he wanted Denzel Washington to play the lead character, taking on the mantle of the first African-American baseball player to break the color barrier and join Major League Baseball. A few years earlier, Washington starred in Lee's Malcolm X. The actor believed he was too old to play Jackie Robinson at the time. 155-page script is available through the Dropbox link in Spike Lee's Instagram page, and at first glance appears to cover the majority of Robinson's life, including his collegiate career at UCLA, his time spent in the military, his ascent to the majors, and even his life after baseball. Like many of Lee's films, we have no doubt it's an unflinching look at a complex character forced to straddle the racial, cultural, and political lines that exist in 20th century America. If you can't see it in theaters, we can at least see it in our heads. That's from AV Club. I always find this interesting, Joe. You talk to any filmmaker, and they will speak about unproduced screenplays and work that they would love to do. They couldn't collaborate on Spike Lee and Jackie Robinson. I mean, that seems like it would have been a match made in heaven. Now, obviously, 42 came out, so who knows if it'll ever happen. But I'm curious to take a look at the script. Me too. I'm, I'm looking through it right now, and it's it it's it's the whole real thing. He wasn't lying. I don't know why he would have been lying. But Adnan, we need to get the cinephile players ready, and we got to make this thing. <laughs> All right, let's get a little GoFundMe going. Let's try to get Spike Lee up for a little Kickstarter campaign, and eventually we could see this. That would be awfully cool. Mount Rushmore. All right, some entertainment news. Now let's get to the Mount Rushmore Jim Carrey movies inspired by my brother who said, yeah, you're going to like Bruce Almighty. I think it's one of his best films. I don't think it's one of his best films. I don't think it's close. So here I'm going to give you his best movies. And this is tricky because you say, hang on, how do you balance the drama with the comedy? So I'm going to give you one out-and-out drama, 
Eternal sunshine of the spotless mind in which he's tremendous playing Joel, a guy who wishes he could remove the love of his life because it's too painful to endure these memories. It was really creative and inspired. Uh, got rave reviews back in 2004. A shame he was not nominated for Best Actor, but I think it's one of his best films, no doubt about it. I'll include The Truman Show, which is, again, a comedy, but also very dramatic. This was the point where Carey was really diving into the waters of more dramatic roles. Andrew Nichol wrote the script, felt like it was ahead of its time. Peter Weir, the director, kind of predicted reality television. Ed Harris, fantastic as well in the movie. And Carey really sells the role, and he does so by showing how tortured this guy is, realizing his entire life is a TV show for the entertainment of everyone. So those two to me were locks. And of course, I got to go Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, which I rewatched. I mean, I watched it last year for the 25th anniversary. Still hysterical. And announced the birth of a new comedic talent. He'll do anything for a laugh, whether it's talking out of his butt or just screaming or the ridiculous hair or his actions. To me, that's got to be in there. So that leaves only one coveted spot. What else can you get on here? I'm going to exclude Dumb and Dumber. I'm going to go with Liar Liar because I think to me this is like Jim Carrey as Jerry Lewis. The physical comedy is unmatched. It's one of these high-concept comedies, just like Bruce Almighty, Jim Carrey Becomes God. Well, in this case, Jim Carrey can't tell a lie. And what he does with that material is so inspired and so funny. I think Liar Liar to me is really one of his best works. That is my Mount Rushmore, Eternal Sunshine, The Truman Show, Ace Ventura, and Liar Liar. I know all you Dumb and Dumber fans are going to come at me. I couldn't get it in there. The Mask obviously is great. Uh, nobody is voting for the Majestic, obviously. Cable Guy, I do think, is underrated. Would have liked to get it some love, but that's going to be my choice. I have a feeling, Joe, you're not going to go for Mr. Popper's Penguins. What do you got? <laughs> uh, no, I, w- I won't be doing that today. But, oh, it's a hard list. It's a very, very hard list. First, I will get me, myself, and Irene will be on my Mount Rushmore nice. for Jim Carrey movies. I love that movie. It, I think it's so funny. If anyone's listening who hasn't seen that, it is not a family film. It is not meant to be watched with your kids. It is filthy. It is foul. But there is some, it's just Jim Carrey at his finest, playing uh, a person with split personality. I'm also going to agree with you on Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind. Love Michelle Gondry in general. I will have to throw that on my list. If you're going with Pet Detective, I'm going to go with Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls. Love Africa. Love that scene where he's coming out of the, the butt. That's so, 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 so funny. The, the the rhino giving birth to him alone is one of the greatest scenes ever in a Jim Carrey movie. Go ahead. So good. So And the family just watching him do it, it. I would have loved to have been on set that day. And then my last one will be, it's a tough call, The Cable Guy. Only nice. because The Mask the, the mask is really a, a light movie. Um, a lot of his movies are. The Cable Guy is dark and it's brooding. And it, it it's sinister but still very funny so i'll throw that on just because it gave me uh conflicting emotions the entire time i watched it i agree and it was different ben stiller directed it was not a hit it was jim carrey's first bomb at the box office but i'm with you i think it's better than people realize darkly funny the lisp i mean the fact he's this lonely guy desperate for attention the way tv's perverted his life i mean that show where they're uh, with that word game they're doing nipple he's trying to get across i mean that, that whole scene is just hysterical i'm with you cable guy darkly funny and uh, good stuff there as far as Jim Carrey's best movies. As always, you can tweet me, CinephilePod or Adnan Esferk, and let us know what your favorite Jim Carrey movie is. Now it's time for Total Recall. Total Recall. 
Now it's time for Total Recall from 1990. These are the films from 1989, Driving Miss Daisy won Best Picture. This is going to be one of the worst Best Picture winners ever. What else was nominated for Best Picture that year, Joe? Born on the 4th of July, Dead Poets Society, Field of Dreams, and My Left Foot. Interesting mix here. Driving Miss Daisy, Dead Poets Society, Field of Dreams are all highly sentimental and idealistic. My Left Foot is a happy ending, but it's also very dark in terms of what Christy Brown is dealing with. And then Born on the 4th of July is a very heavy movie and anti-war and... uh, Bit of a tough watch, I'll be honest. I'm going to go with Field of Dreams. What the hell? I love baseball more than anything. And I think I get the fact it's sentimental, but people will come, Ray. People will most definitely come. Kevin Costner, never better. James Earl Jones is magnificent. Wonderful script. Uh, Phil Alden Robinson, I believe, was the director of it. And, uh, you know, I love the source material, which is right, W.P. Kinsella, noted Canadian who wrote Shoeless Joe. I love Field of Dreams. I know it gets, you know, people say it's cheesy and schmaltz, but you know what? It hits to the heart for me. I'm glad it was nominated for Best Picture. I think if it would have won, they would have thought that all the Academy were baseball fans, but I definitely would have liked seeing that win over Driving Miss Daisy. Joe? I will agree with you. I will put Field of Dreams as well. One, because, yes, I am a baseball fan, but two, it kind of goes into our conversation of Boston and Buffalo earlier. I'm glad to see Iowa get love as a Midwesterner. And so why not Field of Dreams? That's a great point, actually. You're right. Midwest never wins this kind of stuff. All right. Best director was Oliver Stone for Born on the Fourth of July. This was his second Academy Award, having also won for Platoon. Who else was nominated? Woody Allen for Crimes and Misdemeanors. Peter Weir for Dead Poets Society. Kenneth Branagh for Henry V. And Jim Sheridan for My Left Foot. I'd love to give it to Kenneth Branagh for Henry V because it honestly is a great Shakespearean adaptation, and he and Kevin Klein are probably the two best at doing Shakespeare in the world right now. The other ones, I think, you know, the 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 star is better than the directing. Meaning, my left foot, Jim Sheridan, it's all DDL, Dead Poet Society. I think it's all Robin Williams more than Peter Weir, and I do think that movie's a little. Uh a little far-fetched at times. Crimes and Misdemeanors, I don't think, is one of Woody Allen's best movies, although I was a little surprised to see him up there for Best Director. Screenplay I could have taken. So I will agree with the Academy. Oliver Stone, it's a visceral movie. It's anti-war. Again, it's from Oliver's heart. Tom Cruise is Ron Kovic playing a guy in a wheelchair. Early in the movie, of course, he loves America and believes in patriotism, but the war sours him, and he goes against it. Uh, it's very powerful stuff from Oliver Stone. A worthy win. I agree with you and the Academy with... Born on the Fourth of July. It is a really tough watch. It is. It's. It's. It's a heavy subject. Um, but I think the Academy got it right. So Oliver Stone for sure. I was gonna say, not a movie I've seen twice, and I've no desire to. But if you haven't seen it once, you should. Best actor was Daniel Day Lewis. This was his first Best Actor Oscar. I think it was the right decision. But who else was nominated? Kenneth Branagh for Henry V. Tom Cruise, Born on the Fourth of July. Morgan Freeman, Driving Miss Daisy, and Robin Williams for Dead Poets Society. This was the birth of DDL method acting. I mean, this was, for those who are unaware, Christy Brown. He was an artist, a painter who could only do it with his left foot. The only thing he had uh, control of. Otherwise, you know, his body completely betrayed him. It's a heartbreaking performance. And, uh, you know, at times he's a misanthropic character. He's got the big beard. He's tough to understand. He's virtually unintelligible. But it was an incredible performance. I mean, this is one of those heavyweight champion performances by Daniel Day-Lewis. No brainer that he won Best Actor. Although, shout out to Kenneth Branagh again. Great as Henry V. Yeah, I agree with you. I think uh, Daniel Day-Lewis definitely is worthy of it. Kenneth Branagh, great. Would have always, always advocate for Robin Williams no matter what. But I will go with Daniel Day-Lewis. All right, best actress was Jessica Tandy for Driving Miss Daisy. What else was nominated? Isabel Adjani for Camille Claudel. Pauline Collins for Shirley Valentine. 
Jessica Lang for Music Box, and Michelle Pfeiffer for The Fabulous Baker Boys. Never seen Camille Claudel, Shirley Valentine, or Music Box, so I have no idea. Driving Miss Daisy, I think, is wildly overrated, so I would have gone Michelle Pfeiffer. I love The Fabulous Baker Boys. Good movie about, uh, obviously, the Bridges brothers, Jeff Bridges and Bo Bridges, the power of music, Pfeiffer, sultry, never won an Oscar. She's awesome. She should have won as Susie Diamond. I agree. I think that Driving Miss Daisy is also overrated, but I'll go with Jessica Lange for Music Box. Oh, nice. Going to go with Music Box. Music Box is good then. Okay. Yeah, check it out. I mean, I, I'm also just a Jessica Lang fan in general, but yeah, check it out. Okay, good stuff. How about Supporting Actor? Denzel Washington went for Glory. What else was nominated? Danny Aiello for Do the Right Thing. Dan Aykroyd, Driving Miss Daisy. Marlon Brando, A Dry White Season. And Martin Landau for Crimes and Misdemeanors. Brando, Brando excuse me, phenomenal in A Dry White Season. I mean, just comes in as the, the lawyer and he's... Very ornate and florid and certainly memorable. I'm so happy that Dan Aykroyd is an Academy Award-nominated actor. I just heard him on Mark Maron's podcast. I mean, great Canadian, born in Ottawa, lived for years in Kingston, super funny guy. Obviously, who doesn't love Ghostbusters or spies like us, uh, trading places? So I'm just glad he did indeed get an Academy Award nomination. But even he said, he goes, I knew I'd have no chance once I saw Glory. Although Danny Aiello is incredible as Do the Right Thing. I mean, the Academy could have gone with either guy here, but Denzel and Glory, the scene where he's getting whipped and the look on his face, the single tear comes down, amazing. But again, Aiello is Sal. uh, Boycott Sal's. I mean, honestly, either Denzel or Danny Aiello, you couldn't go wrong here, Joe. 100%. I will personally go with Denzel, but Danny Aiello and Do the Right Thing, he's so good in it. Um but I think Denzel, this is this is one time where he was so deserving of the award. So I'll go with Denzel. All right. How about Best Supporting Actress? The winner was Brenda Fricker playing the mom in My Left Foot, Bridget Fagan Brown. Who else was nominated? Angelica Houston for Enemies, a Love Story. Lena Allen for Enemies, a Love Story. Julia Roberts, Steel Magnolias, and Diane Wiest for Parenthood. Diane Weist, really funny in Parenthood. Tim Kirchner's a huge fan. Steve Martin, the scene where his son makes the catch, he does that wild dance, is really, really funny. But I go with Brenda Fricker, playing a mom who's taking care of his son, who is, you know, obviously terribly handicapped and can do so little to fend for himself. Uh, she's amazing in the movie as, uh, as Bridget Fagan Brown, a worthy winner there for supporting actors. 100%. I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with Julia Roberts for Steel Magnolias. Really enjoyed that movie. And I liked her performance nice. in it. Yeah. I've never seen Steel Magnolias, but I trust your opinion on this one. All right. It's good. It's good. Definitely check that out before Music Box. Uh, but yeah, I liked her performance in that. So I'll go with Julia Roberts. Best screenplay written directly for the screen. An absolute joke. Dead Poets is a Tom Shulman one, but this should have been Spike Lee for Do the Right Thing, which as you look at these nominees, you go, how the hell was Do the Right Thing? Not up for Best Picture. And I was Spike not nominated for Best Director. But go ahead. Give me the other nominees. Crimes and Misdemeanors, Woody Allen, Do the Right Thing, Spike Lee, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, Steven Sodenberg, and When Harry Met Sally by Nora Ephron. Yeah, come on, Spike. I mean, he takes 10 characters. It's a microcosm of America. It's Bed-Stuy where Joe is moving to. By the time you listen to this podcast, he'll be moving into Bed-Stuy with a couple of roommates. It's really funny. It's dramatic. It's powerful. Like I said, the performances are top-notch, the directing is really inventive, and the script, more than anything, it's a great, great script, which is so original and drawing on so many different inspirations. The whole scenes, um, you know, the one scene about um, uh, where he's paying homage to Mitchum, where the whole love and hate, um, God, it's so good. It's so good. How does it not do the right thing? How the hell is Dead Poets? Listen, I'm all for Seize the Day and Oh Captain, My Captain, but this was Spike's Oscar. 
Oh man, Adna, you are going to hate me, but I'm going to give it to When Harry Met Sally by or uh, Nora Ephron. Oh, I know, I know. I well, here's my defense. I, I think it is legitimately one of the best romantic comedies made, but also just representation at the Oscars in 1990 for a woman writer to get a nomination. I would have loved to see her win that night, so I would have given it to her. That is good rationale. Nora Ephron, the late Nora Ephron, was a really talented writer. I don't believe ever won an Oscar. And where Harry Metzler, I would say, is her best movie. So those are all uh, areas in your favor. And especially that first scene, Billy Crystal spitting grapes out the window. And he's talking about how a, a man and a woman can't be friends because the man always wants to have sex with a woman. I mean, there are some great scenes. You always think about the orgasm scene, which, again, is very inspired. But you're right. It is a great script. I will give you that, but uh, I just can't have Spike losing. How about best adapted screenplay? The winner was Driving Miss Daisy. Alfred Uri, based on his play. Who else was nominated? Born on the 4th of July, Enemies, A Love Story, Field of Dreams, and My Left Foot. Listen, I love Paul Mazursky. The fact he was nominated for Enemies, A Love Story, but I would have gone with Field of Dreams and Phil Alden Robinson. I like I said, the people will come, Ray, speech alone is about as good as it gets. You're a pacifist. I mean, there's so many memorable lines. Ease his pain. Uh, you know, if you build it, he will come. Hey, Dad, want to have a catch? I mean, that, that's, that's a tremendous script at all levels. It's so eminently quotable. Phil Alden Robinson should have won. Oh, 100% agree. And, and, it, and the thing I love about it, too, is that, you know, there's a lot of 90s cheese that hasn't aged well um, over the years, but Field of Dreams still holds up. The script holds up, the movie holds up, the story holds up, all of it holds up, and so I, I would definitely give it to Field of Dreams. Couldn't agree more. Thanks so much for checking out Cinephiles. Always, you can subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts next week. Author Don Winslow. He's one of my favorite writers. He's got a new collection of short novels out. We're going to talk to Don about how his books have been adapted into movies and what he thinks of the current climate right now. All that more coming up. Plus, I'll review Brockmire, the last season, season four, currently on IFC. I'll give you my thoughts on Brockmire. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Music.